up where I am today without being a real winner when I see one. Great. Super. Are you losing your drive? No, Sir Jay, I'm not losing my drive. I'm glad to hear it. We're not one of those dreadful firms that think his chap no good after he's 46. Goodbye, Reggie. <laughs> Welcome to the South Mims U podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about work, or more specifically, anti-work. The rejection of work that's pointless, dull, unrewarding, numbingly repetitive and unappreciated by both bosses and shareholders who only care about the bottom line. People all around the world are rebelling against the rigid structures of corporate life, the relentless commutes. Eleven minutes late, staff difficulties at Hampton Wick. Eleven minutes late, defective junction box, New Malden. The garbled corporate nonsense which workers had to pretend to both understand and believe. Would you be kind enough to give us your market report, Miss Pengen? Yes. 71% of housewives these luxury and 81% in Harfordshire expressed interest in the concept of exotic ice cream. Only 8% in Harfordshire and 14% in Lancashire expressed positive hostility, whilst 5% expressed latent hostility. In Harfordshire, 96% of the 50% who formed 20% of consumer spending are in favour. 0.6% told us where we could put our exotic ice cream. <laughs> the ever-lengthening working day, which... With the advent of email and digital devices has meant that work colonises every corner of our lives. It's the anti-work movement, the quiet quitting trend, the great resignation which is seeing many corporate workers not just avoiding going to the office, but leaving their jobs altogether to do something more worthwhile and more human. You may be wondering what those clips are. They're from a classic British sitcom from the 1970s, The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, by David Nobbs. It starred Leonard Rossiter as a sales manager for Sunshine Desserts, a company which made, well, packaged desserts. To talk about what that sitcom has to do with the current global shake-up of how we work in the 21st century, I'm visiting a new department here at South Mims University, the Centre for Anti-Work Studies. Strangely, it looks very much like a regular corporate office. Meeting rooms, cubicles, people at PCs and laptops. Oh, don't be fooled. Uh, those people aren't working. What are they doing? They're anti-working. I don't understand. Well, they're working to transform work by undermining work as usual. Say it again? Well, it's a mouthful, but it makes sense. Uh, our mission here is to study how work has evolved, how, how it became the one thing that ruins most people's lives, and how we can fight back and change work for good. Right, yes. I, I, I see how if you reveal the truth about work in the modern economy, you can get people to change how they work and their attitudes to it. Good. <laughs> right. Uh, but, by the way, uh, who are you here to see? Uh, well, you, I think. You're Robbie Morris, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yes, I am indeed. Robbie Morris, a reader in anti-work studies and head of this new department. Well, we're doing a podcast about your department. Oh, the podcasts. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's my work, podcasting. And you like it? Love it. Then you're lucky. We'll go into my office, shall we? Let's, let's follow me. Take a seat. Thanks. <laughs> That's what we call the Perrin Reminder. The Perrin Reminder. Some of the chairs are fitted with a whoopee cushion that does that farting sound from CJ's office in the in the Reggie Perrin series. Oh yes, yes, Reggie Perrin, classic comedy. Well, what's it got to do with the work you do here? It inspired it. I did 
get where I am today because I watched Reggie Perrin as a kid. Oh, right, I see what you did there. You did get where you are today. CJ was the imperious boss of Sunshine Desserts, and that was his catchphrase. Here's another. I didn't get where I am today without learning how to compromise. <laughs> it's funny, even though it's chilling. I'd hate to work for someone like that. We used clips from the show to highlight the absurdity of work. It was a gloriously absurd show. Well, it generated many memes. Aren't memes dependent on social media and digital devices? No, memes are ideas that spread fast within a society, and, and they've always existed. Of course, digital tech means they spread really fast. But they also die out really fast. In the 1970s, they spread at a steady rate and hung around, sometimes for decades. You talk to someone my age, I'm 61, and, and slip into a I didn't get where I am today reference, and you'll get a laugh, as well as a great start to a new conversation, probably about the absurdity of work or the tyranny of the bosses. Oh, I see. Or just mention your mother-in-law. Uh, Mother Ang, she wants to know if we're going over to see her on Sunday. <laughs> of course, every time Reggie's wife mentions her mother, all he can think of is a large hippopotamus. And there's that classic clip of a hippopotamus running through the mud. I've seen that online. David Nobbs, the creator and writer of Reggie Perrin, said that whoever found that particular clip should have won the Oscar for Best Film Clip in a Comedy. So, you said that you did get where you are today because of Reggie Perrin. What do you mean by that? Let's go for a walk and I'll explain. Ah, now this is funny. You've landscaped the grounds behind your building with a winding path that has Coleridge Close, Wordsworth Avenue and uh, Tennyson Drive there. Yes, they refer to the daily walk Reggie would make from his classic suburban home. They're the streets that he walks down to get to the local station of Norberton. Does that actually exist? You mean the place, Norberton? Yeah, I know London, but not that well. Yes, it exists. It's actually in West London, though some of the stations Reggie mentions are more southwest London. I see. And in the story, he lived in a suburb called Climthorpe, which sounds northern. Of course, it doesn't exist, but that's where the series was set. He always mentions London-based stations, and he's always 11 minutes late, although in the second series he's always 17 minutes late. So... Nobbs's geography is a bit confused, but I, I think that's deliberate. It heightens the absurdity of the whole world of Reggie Perrin. I just looked it up. Trains go from Shepparton to Norbiton, and then the stops after are New Malden, Rains Well, Park, we don't really need that kind of detail. Wimbledon, Clapham Junction, Vauxhall, and London Waterloo. Yes. I was a bit of a train spotter when I was a kid. Oh, well, that's a fine hobby. For a kid. A bit embarrassing. Why be embarrassed? Well, train spotting's very nerdy and I never usually admit to it, though I did include it once on an online profile that I mistyped and put trans spotting. Got some pretty bad abuse. Oh, I can imagine. Okay, so David Nobbs played around with the British rail lines. That, well, that's fine. That's a side issue. Sorry, Paul. You were going to explain why Reggie Perrin changed your life. Well, it started with my dad's mother-in-law. You mean your maternal grandmother? Yes, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to use that sound effect again. <laughs> Good idea. I'll tell the producer. <laughs> My dad came home from work one day and laughed about the hippo clip that appears each time Reggie's wife mentions her mum. 
that was the first time I'd heard of the Reggie Perrin series. The first episode had gone out and my dad's friend thought it was brilliant. So we sat down to watch the second episode when it came on the TV. Ah, oh, of course, no streaming, no catch-up, no video on demand in the 1970s. Exactly, we had to have patience then. Which is a virtue after all. It is indeed. Anyway, so I watch the second episode and I'm hooked. Why? Because Reggie reminded me of my own father. How? He hated his job. What did he do? He worked in an insurance company. What kind of insurance? Only an ex-train spotter would ask me that question. No. Why? Well, because most people just think of general insurance. But my father worked in a specialised insurance broker, actually. Well, what do they specialise in? Religious practitioners and places. What does that mean? Well, churches, monasteries, convents, other places of worship, some temples, mosques, madrasas and retreat centres. Why do they need specialist insurance? I don't really know. My father didn't like talking about his work, but every day for 27 years it's mind-numbingly dull and absurd. So that's why he liked Reggie Perrin? Actually, he didn't like Reggie Perrin. After watching that episode, episode two of the first series, he refused to watch the series again. It was too close to home, and I knew it. And that made the series even more poignant for me. Reggie Perrin encapsulated your father's situation. Yes, it did. Both his situation and his dilemma. He wanted to quit, but he couldn't quit. He was the classic 1970s breadwinner. Mm. My mother was a housewife. We had a similar suburban home to Reggie's. And my dad's commute from Epping to Moorgate every day was just as dull. And probably longer than Reggie's. Epping to Moorgate. That's the central line to Liverpool Street, then changed the Metropolitan Line for Moorgate. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, he walked from Liverpool Street to Moorgate. I mean, it gave him time to unwind for the long journey. It's only about 40 minutes. Yes, but when you're going to a job you don't like, then it feels like a lifetime. I see your point. Well, let's get back into the department, and there's something else I want to show you. OK. This is our uh, quiet quitting training area. It's very uh, calm. That's because people are learning to do the bare minimum. I don't understand. Could you define quiet quitting? It's the opposite of what Reggie Perrin did. His extended and strange journey from despair to finally quitting his job was loud and surreal. But in real life, most of us can't do that. Instead, we can fight back by doing what you need to do and nothing more. You don't actually quit your job. You quit the rat race within the organisation. You do what you're paid to do. Nothing less, nothing more. Once you're out the door, you don't look at emails, take calls, respond to WhatsApp notifications from your colleagues or superiors, and you ignore LinkedIn at all costs. You do nothing work-related until you are at your desk. Be that at home or in an actual office. And when only when you're on the clock, being paid for what it says in your contract of employment. Again, nothing less and nothing more. And you do it quietly. Well, it's a figure of speech. It's a bit like the old work to rule that trade unions used to do. You know, you follow the rules but never go that extra mile because that's the road to exploitation. Nice turn of phrase. Oh, thank you. Quiet quitting is happening all around the world, and it's driving employers mad. They can't squeeze extra value from their assets anymore, their, their human assets. And that means they have to employ more people to keep their businesses going. But again, they're not actually quitting. No, just avoiding exploitation. 
It's hard to see office workers as exploited. Well, not if you're an office worker yourself. I mean, everyone in an office is potentially being exploited, even if they're being well paid financially. They're being robbed of their time and well-being and, and, and their soul. So um, what are you teaching these people to do? Like I said, do only what they need to do. We give them a contract, in quotes, and they study it, and then we monitor the work they do. Ah, well, there's someone doing a bit too much work. That's amazing. How, how, how did you monitor them so closely? It's the Quiet Quitting app. You put it on your phone. It scans your employment contract and then alerts you when you're going above and beyond. You get a choice of alerts. That person obviously likes a good old-fashioned klaxon. But isn't going above and beyond good for the person and the organisation they work for? Not usually. That's just a myth corporate communications people try and convince you about to squeeze more time and effort out of you to boost shareholder returns. OK. I won't ask again. I get it. It takes a while to get into the quiet quitting groove. Most people are so used to doing more than they need to, so it's hard to get used to quietly doing less. Let's go to the resignation room. The resignation room? Come on. No, it, it's, just, it's just down here. It looks like uh, a piano bar. Well, it is a piano bar. Why is it a piano bar? Because it turns out that the most popular place to make the decision to quit your job, for good, is in a place like this. A piano bar, a hotel bar, a public house or a coffee shop. Really? There's been research done on that. I mean, I would have thought it's the kind of decision you make in the office or, or at home. Well, we did research. Our, our methodology was watertight. OK, so how does being here help your students? In here we do seminars on how to quit, why to quit and what to quit. Oh, would you like a, a drink? No, OK. Um, what does your research show is the one drink that leads to a positive resignation decision? That's easy. A whiskey sour. Uh, Jen? Jen? Uh, a whiskey sour and uh, a mojito, please. Thanks, thanks. And the mojito? Most popular drink during the first hour after resigning. But I don't want to resign. I like my job. Hmm. Do you? I do. Actually, I love my job. Making podcasts for South Mims U? Yeah, making this podcast for South Mims U. OK. So, I suppose we're talking now about what's been called the Great Resignation, right? Yes, it started rolling during the pandemic. Suddenly, people had the chance to take stock of their lives and stay home. They didn't commute, they re-engaged with their families and communities. And many people just up and resigned from their jobs. To do nothing? No, to find jobs that suited them better or which made a more positive contribution to both their lives and society. And many of them had a whiskey sour just before they did it. Well, not that many, but statistically it was the whiskey sour which came out on top. It's a fun fact rather than a world-changing insight. I'd let it go. OK, so this is where Reggie Perrin comes in, right? Oh, well, Reggie's been with us all along. Reggie did the equivalent of quiet quitting and then actually quit quite spectacularly. Well, he pretended to commit suicide. That, that is a bit extreme, isn't it? Well, yes, but it was funny on TV. But in real life, unfortunately, it's an all-too-frequent occurrence. When Reggie Perrin first went out, David Nobbs said that he got, as he put it, and I quote, 
quite a lot of letters from people in despair at the sense of being trapped in jobs that didn't satisfy them. Often they asked for advice. I found my replies very difficult. It must have been difficult. And he really struck a chord. The 1970s was a difficult decade, just like this one. Oil embargoes, recession, inflation, double-digit inflation, stagflation. A real cock-up on the capitalism front. Ah, that's another sly Perrin reference. The, uh, the army guy. Uh... Uh, Jimmy, Reggie's brother-in-law. That's it. A funny character. Uh, you finished your drink. Uh, want another? No, no. Shouldn't drink on the job. Still want the job? What? Do you still want your job? Uh, no, no, one whiskey sour isn't going to change my mind. Okay, clearly you do enjoy what you do. I do. You're lucky. You enjoy what you do though, right? I enjoy what I do now, but I almost fell into the trap my father did. But you quit? Quietly at first, then rather noisily. Good for you. My father did eventually resign. He waited until his pension was big enough, which I understood, but I think it was a compromise too far. He died just a year after he retired. There's research that shows that men who retire early, for instance at 60 or 62 rather than 65, die sooner than those who retire at the usual age. Though that retirement age is uh, changing. Yes, they're making us work longer. But we're living longer. Are we? I thought we were. We might be, but the quality of life of those extra years isn't great. No, you're depressing me again. I'll have another drink. No thanks. I'm confused. Are you saying your dad should have kept working rather than retiring early? No, I'm saying he should have quit long before and done something he absolutely loved. Ah, right. Yeah, I see the point. The point is that many of those people who retire early do so in a state of despair. They've just had enough. The job has made them sick, physically and mentally, and they are more vulnerable to fatal conditions. But if you quit a job to do something that satisfies you, then you live longer. Got it. The point is what you do. You need to do something that you feel is worthwhile and not just for the bosses or the shareholders. Exactly. And you know all this just because of Reggie Perrin, a British sitcom from the 1970s. That's right. It's all down to Reggie. He's why I'm a leading expert in anti-work. So, you really got where you are today. <laughs> yes, I got where I am today by watching Reginald Perrin. And I urge your listeners to do the same. Thank you, Robbie. That's been fascinating. Well, it's been a pleasure. That's the end of this episode of the South Mims You podcast. I hope you didn't find it too much hard work. <laughs> and uh, now it's time for me to quit quietly and for you to relax and think about your own situation. Do you love your work or should you start to quietly quit? Only you can tell. Please check out the other episodes from South Mims U, the world's most unusual university. Goodbye. Great. Super. That's about it then.